Chapter 3 The Wages of Sin The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 The death here spoken of is that which is due as the disciplinary measure of God's law. In presenting the subject of our text, I must, Roman numeral 1, illustrate the nature of sin. Roman numeral 2, specify some of the attributes of the penal sanctions of God's law. Roman numeral 3, show what this penalty must be. Roman numeral 1, illustrate the nature of sin. 1. An illustration will give us the best practical view of the nature of sin. You only have to imagine a government established to secure the highest well-being of the governed and of the ruling authorities also. Suppose that the head of this government uses all his attributes in this enterprise, all his wealth, all his time, all his energies, to achieve the lofty goal of the highest general good. For this purpose, he enacts the best possible laws, laws that, if obeyed, will secure the highest good of both subject and prince. He then takes care to set up adequate penalties, or else all his care and wisdom must be for nothing. He devotes all that he has and all that he is to the interests of his government without reserve or decrease. However, some of his subjects refuse to sympathize with this movement. They say, charity begins at home, and they want themselves taken care of first. Basically, they are completely selfish. It is easy to see that this would be in a human government. The person who does this becomes the common enemy of the government and all of its subjects. This is sin. This illustrates precisely the case of the sinner. Sin is selfishness. It sets up a selfish end and uses selfish means to reach it. In respect to both its end and its means, it is absolutely opposed to God and to all the ends of the general happiness that he seeks to secure. It denies God's rights and discards God's interests. Each sinner maintains that his own will should be the law. The interest he sets himself to secure is entirely opposed to that proposed by God in his government. All law must have punishment. Without consequences, it would only be advice. It is therefore essential to the distinctive and inherent nature of law that it have punishment. These punishments promise reward for obedience, and they also threaten penalty for disobedience. They vindicate the honor of the violated law. These punishments may be either natural or governmental. Often both forms exist in other governments than the divine. Natural penalties are those evil consequences that naturally result without any direct interference of government to punish. Therefore, in all governments, 
the disrespect of its friends falls as a natural penalty on transgressors. They are the natural enemies of all good subjects. In the divine government, sorrow of conscience and remorse fall into this class, and indeed many other things that are naturally the result of obedience on the one hand and of disobedience on the other. There should also be governmental consequences. Every governor should make known his displeasure against the violation of his laws. To leave the whole question of obedience to mere natural consequences is obviously unjust to society. Inasmuch as governments are established to sustain law and secure obedience, they are bound to put forth their utmost energies in this work. Another related instrument of government, under some circumstances, is that which we call discipline. One object of discipline is to go before the pain of penalty and force unwilling eyes to open to see that law has a government to back it up, and that the sinner has a terrible penalty to fear. Being known and observed by people before they have broken the law, while as yet they have not seen or felt the fearfulness of penalty, it is designed to admonish them, to make them think and consider. Thus, its special object is the good of the subject on whom it falls, and of those who may witness its penalties being carried out. It does not propose to sustain the dignity of law by severe punishment. This belongs exclusively to the area of penalty. Discipline, therefore, is not punishment in the sense of visiting crime with deserved punishment, but aims to deter the subject of law from violating its precepts. Disciplinary measures could scarcely exist under a government of pure law because such a government cannot defer inflicting the penalty. Discipline presupposes a state of suspended penalty. Therefore, corrective measures must be broadly distinguished from disciplinary measures. We are sinners, and therefore have little occasion now to dwell on the profitable features of God's government. We can have no claim to benefit under law, being completely prevented by our sin. We have everything to do with the features of punishment, however. I will therefore proceed to discuss some of this. Roman numeral 2 We must specify some of the attributes of the disciplinary measures of God's law. God has given us reason. This affirms intuitively and irresistibly all the great truths of moral government. There are certain attributes that we know must belong to the moral law, such as intrinsic justice. The penalty should threaten no more and no less than is just. Justice must be an attribute of God's law, or else the whole universe must inevitably condemn it. Intrinsic justice means and implies that the penalty should be equal to the obligation violated. 
The guilt of sin consists in its being a violation of obligation. The fault must be in proportion to the magnitude of the obligation violated, and consequently the penalty must be measured by this obligation. Governmental justice is another attribute. This feature of law seeks to provide security against transgression. Law is not governmentally just unless its penalty is so measured as to provide the highest security against sin that the nature of the case allows. Suppose under any government that the punishment of law is insignificant and is not at all proportioned to the end to be secured. Such a government is unjust to itself and to the interests it is committed to maintain. Therefore, a good government must be governmentally just, providing in the severity of its penalties and in the certainty of those penalties being carried out the highest security that its law will be obeyed. Corrective punishments should be worthy of the end aimed at by the law and by its author. Government is only a means to an end, with the proposed end being universal obedience and its consequent happiness. If law is indispensable for obtaining this end, its penalty should be structured accordingly. The penalty, then, should be assigned according to the importance of the precept. If the specific law is of fundamental importance, of such importance that disobedience to it undermines the very existence of all government, then it should be guarded by the greatest and most solemn penalties. The penalties attached to its violation should be of the highest order. The penalty should make an adequate expression of the lawgiver's views of the value of the end he proposes to secure by law, as well as of his views of the sacredness of his law and of the intrinsic guilt of disobedience. A penalty aims to bring forth the heart of the lawgiver, to show the earnestness of his desire to maintain the right and to secure that order and well-being that depend on obedience. In the greatness of the penalty, the lawgiver brings forth his heart and pours the whole influence of his character upon his subjects. The object of executing the penalty is precisely the same. It is not to exact revenge, as some seem to think, but is to act on the subjects of government with influences toward obedience. It has the same general object as the law itself has. Corrective penalties should be an adequate expression of the lawgiver's regard for the public good and of his interest in it. In the law, he gave some expression. In the penalty, he gave still more. In the law, we see the object in view and have a manifestation of regard for the public interests. In the penalty, we have a measure of this regard, showing us how great it is. For example, suppose a human law were to punish murder with just a slight penalty. Under the pretense of being very tender-hearted, 
the lawgiver punishes this crime of murder with a fine of five dollars. Would this show that he greatly loved his subjects and highly valued their life and interests? Far from it. You cannot believe that a legislator has done his duty unless he shows how much he values human life and unless he attaches a penalty proportionate in some good degree with the end to be secured. One word as to the sentence of capital punishment in human governments. There is a difference of opinion as to which is most effective, solitary confinement for life or death. Leaving this question without remark, I have to say that no one ever doubted that the murderer deserves to die. If some punishment other than death is to be preferred, it is not by any means because the murderer does not deserve death. No one can doubt this for a moment. It is one of the unalterable principles of righteousness that if a person sacrifices the interest of another, he sacrifices his own. An eye for an eye and life for life. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Genesis 9.6 We cannot but affirm that no government places sufficient emphasis on the protection of human life unless it guards this trust with its highest penalties. Where life and all its vital interests are at stake, there the penalty should be as great and serious as is possible. Moral means have two sides to their sensibility, hope and fear, and to these you can address the hope of good and the dread of evil. I am now speaking of the penalty. This is addressed only to fear. I have said in substance that a penalty should adequately assert and vindicate the rightful authority of the lawgiver. It should also provide, if possible, an adequate rebuke of sin, and it should be based on a just appreciation of its nature. God's moral government embraces the whole intelligent universe and stretches with its vast results onward through eternity. Therefore, the sweep and breadth of its interests are absolutely unlimited, and consequently, the penalties of its law being set to vindicate the authority of this government and to sustain these immeasurable interests should be beyond measure dreadful. If anything beyond and more dreadful than the threatened penalty could be conceived, all minds would say this is not enough. With any just views of the relations and the guilt of sin, they could not be satisfied unless the penalty is the greatest that could be conceived. Sin is so vile, so harmful, so terribly destructive, and so far-sweeping in its ruin, that moral agents could not feel that enough is done as long as more could be done. Roman numeral 3. What is the penalty 
of God's moral law. Our text answers that the wages of sin is death. This certainly is not physical death, for both saints and animals die, neither of whom can be receiving the wages of sin. Besides, this would be no penalty if, after it is carried out, people went immediately to heaven. Such a penalty considered as the wages of sin would only be an insult to God's government. This cannot be spiritual death, for this is nothing else than a state of entire disobedience to the law. You cannot well conceive anything more absurd than to punish a person for disobedience by subjecting him to perpetual disobedience, an effort to sustain the law by dooming such offenders to perpetually violate the law and nothing more. This death is, though, endless misery corresponding to the death penalty in human governments. Everybody knows what this is. It separates the criminal from society forever. It excludes him at once and completely from all the privileges of the government and hands him over to hopeless ruin. Nothing more dreadful can be inflicted. It is the extreme penalty, fearful beyond any other, that is possible for man to inflict. There can be no doubt that death, as spoken of in our text, is intended to correspond to the death penalty in human governments. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6, 23. You will also observe that in our text, the gift of God, that is, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, is directly contrasted with death, the wages of sin. This fact may throw light on the question respecting the nature of this death. We must look for the antithesis of eternal life. This eternal life is not merely an eternal existence. Eternal life never means merely an eternal existence in any place where it is used in Scripture, but it does mean a state of eternal blessedness, implying eternal holiness as its foundation. The use of the term life in Scripture in the sense of real life, a life worth living, that is, real and rich enjoyment, is so common as to supersede the necessity of special proof. The penalty of death is therefore the opposite of eternal life. It is eternal misery. I must say a few words now regarding the objections raised against this doctrine of eternal punishment. All the objections I have ever heard amount only to this, that it is unjust. They may be expressed in somewhat various phraseology, but this is the only idea that is involved. 1. It is claimed to be unjust because life is so short. How strangely people talk! Do they think that life is so short? that people do not have time to sin enough 
to deserve eternal death? Do they forget that one sin incurs the penalty due for sinning? How many sins does it take to make one transgression of the law of God? People often talk as if they suppose it must require a great many, as if a person must commit a great many murders before he has committed the crime of murder enough to fall under the sentence of the court. What? Will a person come before the court and plead that although he has certainly broken the law, yet he has not lived long enough and has not broken the law enough times to incur its penalty? What court on earth ever recognized such a plea as proving anything else other than the foolishness and guilt of the one who made it? 2. It is also urged that man is so small, so very insignificant a being, that he cannot possibly commit an infinite sin. What does this objection mean? Does it mean that sin is an act of creation and is to be measured, therefore, by the magnitude of that something that it creates? This would be an exceedingly wild idea of the nature of sin. Does the objection mean that people cannot violate an obligation of infinite strength? That meaning is simply false, as everybody must know. Does he imply that the guilt of sin is not to be measured by the obligation violated? Then he does not know what he says, or else he wickedly denies known truth. What? Do some say that man is so little that he cannot commit much sin? Is this the way we reason in similar cases? Suppose your child disobeys you. He is very much smaller than you are, but do you therefore exonerate him from blame? Is this a reason that nullifies his guilt? Can no sin be committed by inferiors against their superior? Have sensible people always been mistaken in supposing that the younger and smaller are sometimes under obligations to obey the older and the greater? Suppose you strike the judge. Suppose you insult or attempt to assassinate the king. Is this a very small crime almost too excusable to be deemed a crime at all because you are in a lower position? and he in a higher? You say, I am so little, so very insignificant. How can I deserve so great a punishment? Do you reason that way in any other case except regarding your own sins against God? Never. 3. Some people say, Sin is not an infinite evil. This language is uncertain. Does it mean that sin would not work infinite harm if allowed to continue indefinitely? This is false, for if only one soul were ruined by it, the harm accumulating from it would be infinite. Does it mean that sin is not an infinite evil as seen in its present results and relations? Suppose we agree with this. 
it proves nothing to our purpose. For it may be true that the sum total of evil results from each single sin will not all be brought out in any duration less than eternity. How then can you measure the evil of sin by what you see today? But there are still other considerations to show that the penalty of the law must be infinite. Sin is an infinite natural evil. It is so in the sense that there are no bounds to the natural evil it would introduce if not governmentally restrained. If sin were to ruin only one soul, there could be no limit set to the evil that would thus result. Sin involves infinite guilt because it is a violation of infinite obligation. It is important here to notice a common mistake that grows out of confusion of ideas about the basis of obligation. Mistakes result from this in regard to what constitutes the guilt of sin. I might show here that when you misunderstand the basis of obligation, you will almost of necessity misunderstand the nature and extent of sin and guilt. Let us return to our previous illustration. Here is a government that is wisely framed to secure the highest good of the governed and of all concerned. From where comes the obligation to obey? Certainly it comes from the intrinsic value of the end that is sought. But how broad is this obligation to obey? In other words, what is its true measure? I answer that it exactly equals the value of the end that the government seeks to secure and that obedience will secure, but that sin will destroy. By this measure of God, the penalty must be graduated. The lawgiver must determine by this how much punishment he must attach to his law in order to meet the demands of justice and benevolence. God's law aims to secure the highest universal good. Its main and ultimate end is not, strictly speaking, to secure supreme homage to God, but rather to secure the highest good of all intelligent moral beings, God and all his creatures. If you see it in this way, you will see that the intrinsic value of the end to be sought is the real ground of obligation to obey the precept. Having estimated the value of this end, you have the value and strength of the obligation. This is plainly infinite in the sense of being unlimited. In this sense, we affirm obligation to be without limit. The very reason why we affirm any obligation at all is that the law is good and is the necessary means of the highest good of the universe. Therefore, the reason why we affirm any penalty at all compels us to affirm the justice and necessity of an infinite penalty. 
we see that intrinsic justice must demand an infinite penalty for the same reason that it demands any penalty whatsoever. If any penalty is just, it is just because law secures a certain good. If this good aimed at by the law is unlimited in extent, so must be the penalty. Governmental justice thus requires endless punishment, or else it provides no sufficient guarantee for the public good. The law not only is designed to secure infinite good, but it tends to secure it. Its tendencies are focused on the purpose. Therefore, its penalty should be infinite. The law is not just to the interests it both aims and tends to secure unless it arms itself with infinite sanctions. Nothing less than infinite penalty can be an adequate expression of God's view of the value of the great end on which his heart is set. When people talk about eternal death being too great a penalty for sin, what do they think of God's efforts to restrain sin all over the moral universe? What do they think of the death of his well-beloved Son? Do they suppose it is possible that God could give an adequate or corresponding expression to his hatred of sin by any penalty that is less than endless? Nothing less could give an adequate expression to his regard for the authority of law. How fearful the results, and how shocking the very idea that God would fail to make an adequate expression of his regard for the sacredness of that law that underlies the entire well-being of all his vast kingdom. You would insist that he should regard the violation of his law as universalists do. How surely he would bring down an avalanche of ruin on all his intelligent creatures if he were to yield to your demands. If he were to affix anything less than endless penalty to his law, what holy being could trust the administration of his government? His regard for the public good forbids his attaching a light or finite penalty to his law. He loves his subjects too well. Some people have strange notions of the way in which a ruler should express his regard for his subjects. They would have him so tender-hearted toward the guilty that they would receive his complete sympathy and favor. They would allow him, perhaps, to fine a murderer a few dollars, but not much more, if anything. The poor murderer's wife and children are so precious that you must not take away much of his money, and as regarding his liberty or his life, neither of these should be thought of. What? Do you not know that human nature is very frail and corrupt? and therefore you should deal very lightly with penalties for murder? Maybe they would say that you may punish the murderer by keeping him awake one night, just one but no more, and that God may let a guilty person's conscience disturb him about to this extent for the crime of murder. 
the universalists do tell us that they will allow the Most High God to give a person a conscience that will trouble him a little if he commits murder. A little, maybe, for the first and maybe the second offense. But they are not accustomed to notice the fact that under this penalty of a troubling conscience, the more a man sins, the less he has to suffer. Under the operation of this descending scale, it will soon happen that a murderer would not get as much penalty as the loss of one night's sleep. These are the ideas that people reach when they stay clear of the affirmations of an upright reason and of God's revealing word. Speaking now to those who have a moral sense to affirm the right, as well as eyes to see the operation of law, I know you cannot deny the logical necessity of the death penalty for the moral law of God. There is a logical connection to every one of these propositions that you cannot escape. No penalty less than infinite and endless can be an adequate expression of God's displeasure against sin and of His determination to resist and punish it. The penalty should continue as long as there are subjects to be affected by it, as long as there is need of any demonstration of God's feelings and governmental course toward sin. Nothing less is the greatest that God can inflict, for He certainly can inflict an endless and infinite punishment. If, therefore, the exigency demands the greatest penalty He can inflict, then the penalty must be banishment from God and endless death. I must now remark that the gospel everywhere promotes the same. It holds that by the deeds of the law, no flesh can be justified before God. Romans 3.20 Indeed, it not only affirms this, but it builds its entire system of atonement and grace upon this foundation. It constantly affirms that there is no such thing as paying the debt and canceling obligation, but that the sinner's only relief is forgiveness through redeeming blood. So, if the penalty is not endless death, what is it? Is it temporary suffering? Then how long does it last? When does it end? Has any sinner ever got through it, served out his time, and been taken to heaven? We do not have even one testimony to prove such a case but we have the solemn testimony of Jesus Christ to prove that there never can be such a case. He tells us that there can be no passing from hell to heaven or from heaven to hell. A great gulf is fixed between them, over which no one will ever pass. Luke 16:26. You may pass from earth to heaven or from earth to hell, but these two states of the future world are wide extremes, and no person or angel will pass the gulf that divides them. I ask what the penalty is, and you reply that it is only the natural consequences of sin as developed 
in a troubled conscience. It follows, then, that the more someone sins, the less he is punished, until it amounts to an infinitesimal quantity of punishment for which the sinner cares just nothing at all. Who can believe this? Under this system, if a person fears punishment, all he must do is throw himself into sin with more will and energy. He will then have the comfort of thinking that he can very soon get over all his uneasy feelings and get beyond any penalty whatsoever. Do you believe this is God's only punishment for sin? You cannot believe it. Universalists always confuse discipline with punishment. They overlook this fundamental distinction and think that everything that people suffer here in this world is only punishment. However, it is hardly punishment at all, but it is mainly disciplinary. They ask what good it will do a sinner to send him to an endless hell. Is not God perfectly benevolent, and if so, how can he have any other intent than to do the sinner all the good he can? I answer that punishment is not designed to do good to that sinner who is punished. Rather, the punishment looks to accomplish good that is outside the one being punished, and that accomplishes far greater good. Discipline, while the person was on earth, mainly sought his personal good. Penalty looks to other results. If you ask whether God intends to do good to the universal public by penalty, I answer yes. This is precisely what he intends to do. Under human governments, the penalty may aim in part to reform. So far, it is discipline. But the death penalty, after all delay is passed and the fatal blow comes, aims not to reform. It is not discipline, but it is only penalty. The guilty person is laid on the public altar and is made a sacrifice for the public good. The intention is to make a fearful, dreadful impression on the public mind about the evil of transgression and the fearfulness of its consequences. Discipline looks not as much to the support of law as to the recovery of the offender. The day of judgment has nothing to do with reclaiming the lost sinner. That and all its issues are purely punitive or disciplinary. It is strange that these obvious facts are often overlooked. There is yet another consideration that is often disregarded, that underlying any safe disbursement of discipline, there must be a moral law, sustained by sufficient and fearful sanctions, to preserve the lawgiver's authority and sustain the majesty and honor of his government. It would not be safe to trust a system of discipline, and indeed it could not be expected to take hold of the ruined with much force if it were not sustained by a system of law and penalty. 
This punishment given to the unconverted sinner must stand forever. An appalling fact that shows that justice is realized, the law is vindicated, and God is honored. And to make an enduring and dreadful impression of the evil of sin and of God's eternal hostility against it. Remarks We hear many criticisms against future punishment. We would not be surprised at this except for the fact that the gospel advocates this truth and then proposes a remedy. One would naturally suppose that the mind would retreat from those fearful conclusions to which it is pressed when the relations of mere laws are contemplated. But when the gospel intervenes to save, then it becomes exceedingly strange that people would admit the reality of the gospel and yet reject the law and its penalties. They talk of grace, but what do they mean by grace? When people deny the fact of sin, there is no room or occasion for grace in the gospel. To those who formally admit the fact of sin while essentially denying its sinfulness, grace is only a name. What right do people have to claim that they respect the gospel if they reject the punishments of the law of God and labor to disprove their reality? They make it only a farce, or at least a system of restitution for unreasonably severe laws under the legal system. Let not those who so dismiss the law assume that they honor God by applauding his gospel. The representations of the Bible in regard to the final doom of the wicked are very remarkable. Spiritual truths are revealed by natural objects, such as the gates and walls of the New Jerusalem, to present the splendors and glories of the heavenly state. A spiritual telescope is put into our hands, and we are permitted to point it toward the glorious city, whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews 11.10 We may survey its inner sanctuary, where the worshiping hosts praise God without ceasing. We see their flowing robes of white, the palms of victory in their hands, the beaming joy of their faces, and the expressions of divine joy in their souls. This heaven is portrayed in symbolism. Who supposes that this is intended as hyperbole? Who criticizes these representations as extravagant in speech, as if designed to overrate the case or to raise unwarrantable expectations? No one believes this. No one ever brings this accusation against what the Bible says about heaven. What is the purpose in using this figurative method of representation? Beyond question, the purpose is to give the best possible idea of the facts. Then we have the other side. The veil is lifted, and you come to the very verge of hell to see what is there. Whereas on the one hand all was glorious, on the other all is fearful 
and full of horrors. There is a bottomless pit. A deathless soul is cast into it. It sinks and sinks and sinks, going down into that dreadful pit that knows no bottom, weeping and wailing as it descends, and you hear its groans as they echo and re-echo from the sides of that dread cavern of woe. Here is another image. You have a lake of fire and brimstone, Revelation 20.10, and you see lost sinners thrown into its waves of rolling fire. They land upon its burning shore and gnaw their tongues for pain. Their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched, Mark 9.44. Not one drop of water can reach them to cool their tongues, as they are tormented in that flame, Luke 16.24. What do you think of this? Has God said these things to frighten our poor souls? Did He intend to play on our fears for His own amusement? Can you think so? No. Does it not rather grieve his heart that he must build such a hell and must plunge therein the sinners who will not honor his law and who will not embrace salvation from sinning through his grace? The waves of death roll darkly under the eye of the holy and compassionate one. He has no pleasure in the death of the sinner. Ezekiel 33.11. But he must sustain his throne and save his loyal subjects if he can. Turn to another scene. Here is a deathbed. Did you ever see a sinner die? Can you describe the scene? Was it a friend, a relative, someone very dear to your heart? How long was he dying? Did it seem to you that the agony of death would never end? When my last child died, the struggle was long. It was dreadfully protracted and agonizing. Twenty-four hours in the agonies of fading nature. It made me sick. I could not watch it. But suppose it had continued until now. I would long since have died myself under the anguish and nervous exhaustion of witnessing such a scene. So would all our friends. Who could survive to the final end of such an awful death? Who would not cry out, Oh God, cut it short, cut it short in mercy? When my wife died. Her death struggles were long and heartrending. If you had been there, you would have cried mightily to God, Cut it short! Oh, cut it short! And relieve this dreadful agony! But suppose it had continued on and on all day and night, day after day, through its slow-moving hours, and night after night, long nights, as if there could be no morning. The figure of our text supposes eternal dying. Let us imagine such a case. 
suppose it would actually occur in some dear circle of sympathizing friends. A poor man cannot die. He lingers in the agony of death for a month, a year, five years, ten years, until all his friends are broken down and fall into their graves under the insupportable horror of the scene. Yet still the poor man cannot die. He outlives one generation and then another and another. One hundred years he is dying in mortal agony, yet he comes no nearer to the end. What would you think of such a scene? It would be an illustration, just a feeble illustration of the terrible second death. God wants us to understand what a terrible thing sin is and what fearful punishment it deserves. He would willingly show us by such examples how terrible the doom of the determined sinner must be. Did you ever see a sinner die? Did you not cry out, Surely the curse of God has fallen heavily on this world? This is only a weak example of that heavier curse that comes in the second death. The text affirms that death is the wages of sin. It is just what sin deserves. Labor earns wages and creates a rightful claim to such a payment. In the same way, people earn wages when they sin. They become entitled to their pay. God considers himself obligated to give them their well-deserved wages. As I have often said, I would not say one word in this direction to distress your souls if there were no hope and no mercy possible. Would I torment you before the time? God forbid. Would I hold out the awful penalty before you and tell you there is no hope? No. I say these things to make you feel the need of escaping for your life. Think of this. The wages of sin is death. God wants to erect a monument that will proclaim to all the universe, Stand in awe and sin not. God desires people, when they see this, to say, What a dreadful thing sin is! People are inclined to exclaim, How horrible the penalty! They are too likely to overlook the horrible sin and the deserved punishment of sin. When God lays a sinner on his deathbed before our eyes, he invites us to look at the penalty of sin. There he lies, agonizing, groaning, quivering, and racked with pain. Yet he lives and lives on. Suppose he lives on in this dying conditions for a day, a week, a month, a year, a dozen years, a century, a thousand years, a thousand ages. And still he lives on, dying perpetually, yet never dead. Finally, 
the universe passes away. The heavens are rolled together as a scroll, and what then? There lies that sufferer still. He looks up and cries out, How long? How long? Like the ringing of eternal death, the answer comes down to him, Eternally! Eternally! Another cycle of eternal ages rolls on, and again he dares to ask, How long? Again the answer calls back, Eternally! Eternally! Oh, how this fearful answer comes thundering down through all the realms of agony and despair. We are informed that in the final consummation of earthly scenes, the judgment shall sit, Daniel 7.26, and the books will be opened, Revelation 20.12. We will be there, and what is more, we will be there to close up our account with our Lord and receive what is due to us. Which will you have? on that final settlement day. The wages of sin? Do you say, give me my wages? I will not be indebted to Christ? Sinner, you will have them. God will pay you without fail and without keeping back from you anything that you are owed. He has made all the necessary arrangements and has your wages ready. But take care what you do. Look again before you take your final leap. The curtain will soon fall, and all hope will have perished. Where, then, will I be? Where will you be? Will you be on the right hand? Or on the left. Matthew twenty five, thirty one to forty six. The Bible places hell in the sight of heaven. The smoke of their torment, as it rises up forever and ever, is in full view of the heights of the heavenly city. You adore and worship God there. But as you cast your eye far off toward where the rich man lay, you see what it costs to sin. Not one drop of water can go there to cool their burning tongues, and therefore the smoke of their torment rises and rises forevermore. Take care what you do today. Suppose you are looking into a vast crater where the surges of molten lava boil and roll up and roll and swell and continually spew forth huge amounts of lava to flood the plains below. I once stood inside of Etna and looked down into its awful mouth. I could not refrain from crying out, Tremendous! Tremendous! I believe that was an image of hell. Sinner, think of hell and of you being cast into it. 
the lake of fire pours forth its volumes of smoke and flame forever, never ceasing, never exhausted. Upon that spectacle, the universe can look and read, the wages of sin is death. Keep yourself from sin, since this is the fate of the unpardoned sinner. Think what a demonstration this is in the government of God. What an exhibition this is of His holy justice and of His inflexible purpose to sustain the interests of His holiness and happiness in all His vast dominions. Is not this worthy of God and of the sacredness of His great design of moral government? Sinner, you can still escape this fearful doom. This is the reason why God has revealed hell in His faithful word. Will this revelation to you be in vain and worse than in vain? What would you think if this whole congregation were pushed by some resistless force right up to the very brink of hell? But just as it seemed that we are all to be pushed over the dreadful edge, an angel rushes in, shouting as with seraphic trump, Salvation is possible! Glory to God! Glory to God! Glory to God! You cry aloud, Is it possible? Yes! Yes! he cries. Let me take you up in my broad, loving arms and carry you to the feet of Jesus, for he is mighty and willing to save. Is all this mere talk? No, for even if I could wet my lips with the dews of heaven and bathe my tongue in its founts of eloquence, I could not even then describe the realities. Oh, Christians, are you trying to figure out how to get a little more property or more possessions, yet neglecting souls? Beware that you do not ruin souls that can never live again. Do you say that you thought they knew it all? They reply to you, I did not think you believed a word of it yourselves. You did not act as if you did. Are you going to heaven? Well, I am going down to hell. There is no help for me now. You will sometimes think of me then, as you will see the smoke of my suffering rising up darkly across the glorious heavens. After I have been there a long, long time, you will sometimes think that I, who once lived by your side, am there. You cannot pray for me then, but you will remember that once you could have warned me and might have saved me. I think that if there could be any bitterness in heaven, it would enter through such an avenue and spoil your happiness there.